Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Hello, we're the thoracic surgery team from Swedish Medical Center in Seattle. I'm Megan Lenahan, one of the third-year residents. I'm Peter White, one of the attending thoracic surgeons. And I'm Brian Louie, one of the other attending thoracic surgeons. We're going to jump right in with our first case. This patient is an 18-year-old male who presented to the emergency department with pleuritic right-sided chest pain that started while he was playing basketball. He had no respiratory distress and was saturating normally on room air with normal vital signs. The emergency department obtained a chest x-ray that showed a 2-centimeter separation between the chest wall and lung apex. This is just a classic case presentation. We have a young, athletic, likely tall since he was playing basketball, uh, male with sudden onset of chest pain with uh, deep inspiration. Before you even hear about the rest of the case, you're already thinking primary spontaneous pneumothorax. Well, that brings us to our first discussion point, which is how do you actually characterize or classify these pneumothoraces? Well, we divide them based on their underlying etiology, either spontaneous, traumatic, or atrogenic, although atrogenic is really just another form of a traumatic injury. For those that are spontaneous in nature, we can break it down further into whether they're primary, indicating that there really is no apparent underlying lung disease, or secondary, which is due to an underlying pulmonary pathology, which is most frequently COPD or emphysema. Uh, So Brian, before we get into talking about sizes or treatment plans or algorithms, what's the first thing that we want to know about this patient? Well, Peter, I think that's very simple. I think you want to know if the patient is stable or unstable. Because if they're unstable, we would want to needle decompress that pneumothorax, followed by a bedside chest tube to make them stable. And once they're stable, then they can be evaluated. And during the same hospitalization, we would talk about definitive treatment, either an operation or a bedside chemical pleuridesis. Yeah, thankfully, that's extremely rare occurrence, especially for primary pneumothorax. So, Megan, in this stable patient, what other factors do we look at that can help determine how we would treat him? In addition to the severity of his symptoms, there are several key factors when deciding on treatment options. So the first is whether this is a first-time or second-time pneumothorax. After that, I look at whether this is primary or secondary pneumothorax. And then the degree of collapse, meaning has the whole lung collapsed or just a portion? Finally, I consider whether the patient has had a pneumothorax on the other side and the patient's occupation and interests. Regardless of the size, if he is symptomatic, then I think he needs to be treated. For the patients who are minimally symptomatic, then I think identifying the size of the pneumothorax can be helpful. There are several ways to measure the size of the pneumothorax, either larger than 3 centimeters at the apex or more than 2 centimeters on the chest wall to the lung margin at the hilar level. Or if you have a CAT scan of the chest, you can assess the volume of the pneumothorax more readily 
And anything more than about 30% of the pneumothorax, 30% pneumothorax would be considered large. And then how do you use that information? So for me, when the patient has a primary spontaneous, minimally symptomatic pneumothorax, I look at a size of less than one centimeter, and one option for those patients is simply observing them with follow-up chest x-rays to see if the space will resolve. Those with large pneumothoraxes, most guidelines would recommend evacuation of the pneumothorax with a small bore tube thoracostomy to start, and then treatment decided by the key factors that we discussed before. And for patients with a complete collapse, re-expansion of the lung with a tube thoracostomy followed by surgery is generally recommended for primary spontaneous pneumothorax. Is a CT scan necessary for these patients when you already have the chest x-ray showing pneumothorax? Well, for a first-time primary pneumothorax, it's really not necessary. Uh, But we do know many of these patients do have subpleural blebs, and they can't always be seen on a CT scan. If it was a second occurrence, I definitely get a CT scan, or if I was considering an operative intervention, uh, because that can identify a target for your intervention, uh, or if there was concern that it could actually be a secondary pneumothorax, like in someone who's older, over the age of 50, has a significant smoking history, or if they have any concerning findings on their exam or their chest x-ray. Great. So for this gentleman, we put him on supplemental oxygen and observed him in the emergency department for four hours. They did a repeat chest x-ray, and his pneumothorax was stable. So now what? Well, at this point in time, we would have a conversation about the role of tube thoracostomy to evacuate the space versus needle aspiration of the space versus simple observation and discharge with clinic follow-up. And in this situation, in this case, he opted for no tube. Now, needle aspiration is an interesting option with some smaller studies showing varied success rates in the range of 30 to 80% resolution. But I have to admit, we rarely do that in the United States. But it is much more common to be used in the UK. Often in cases like we are discussing, we opt to place a small board Seldinger type chest drain that also has a one-way valve. There are several commercial products available, and these are all placed by the ER physician in our organization. If the repeat chest x-ray showed resolution, most of these primary pneumothoraces patients are sent home with clinic fo- early clinic follow-up. Okay. The other thing we did for him was apply supplemental oxygen. So this increases the gradient for nitrogen reabsorption, thereby helping to reabsorb the intrapleural gas and, of course, reduces hypoxemia. In practice, there have been studies assessing resolution rates of small pneumothoraces, and supplemental O2 does help with the speed in which they resolve. So on room air, they improve by about one and a quarter to two percent per day, and with supplemental oxygen, that goes up to four to four and a quarter percent per day. But an important point here is that it's not simply two liters via nasal cannula. It's 100% oxygen. So it's not always practical. Though these studies do give us a sense of how long it will take these pneumothoraces to resolve since they should improve on room air by about 2% per day. So this patient returned to the emergency department a few days after his initial visit. Uh, His pleuritic chest pain had not resolved. He had a repeat chest x-ray, and it showed an increased apex to cupola distance. It was nearly three centimeters now. And so we obtained a chest CT at that point to look for any underlying pathology. That showed some scarring, but no blebs. So he was offered a chest tube at that time. In this situation, I would prefer to place a small bore chest tube, such as a pigtail catheter, 
to the apex of the chest, since likely we're going to admit him to hospital because he's already failed some medical management. And as previously mentioned, if the patient was going to be discharged, we would use a tube thoracostomy with a one-way valve device. You mentioned the one-way valve device. I've seen the thoracic service use the mini atrium. What are the different options here? Well, Megan, there are a variety of commercially available one-way valve devices that can be used. Some of them, such as the pneumostat, include both a chest tube, small bore, and a one-way valve, whereas others, such as the mini-atrium or Heimlich valves, are only the one-way valve, and you must have a separate chest tube and then connect the two of them together. They all function the same. Some have a system to collect fluids, such as the mini-atrium. Which system is used is probably more dependent on the clinical situation, but also on hospital contracts, costs, and whether you're an emergency medicine physician or a surgeon. We tend to favor all-in-one devices for patients with primary spontaneous first-time pneumothorax in the ER where we think they're going home since our ER physicians will place them. If we end up placing a pigtail catheter, then we use a Heimlich valve since these patients rarely drain much fluid. We reserve the mini-atrium for our post-op surgical patients with a prolonged air leak and rarely use it in this situation. Okay, so he actually declined a chest tube. But he was admitted overnight and left on supplemental oxygen. And in the morning, his pneumothorax had decreased. Um, He was discharged with clinic follow-up. And two weeks later, when he came back with a chest x-ray, it did show complete resolution. How do you counsel these folks on their risk of recurrence? For a primary pneumothorax, that rate of recurrence is somewhere in the 10 to 30% range within the first five years. Most of those occur within the first year. In individuals who smoke, where they present with a larger initial pneumothorax size, or they have a known presence of blebs on a CT scan, that would put you in the higher end of that range. So when do you start offering surgery for treatment or to prevent recurrences? So in addition to what we had discussed earlier, any patient who presents with complete lung collapse or severe symptoms uh, that require oxygen or a bilateral uh, pneumothoraces, I would offer surgery Uh, at that initial episode. Uh, I discussed surgery for a second episode of the spontaneous pneumothorax. That can occur on either side, uh, the original or on the contralateral side. Or if they don't show resolution by two weeks, or when you do place the tube, if they have an air leak and that air leak persists for more than three days, it would be another reason. Uh, And lastly, if you do end up getting a CT scan and that shows a target, such as cysts or bullet, since they have an increased Uh, recurrence rate and there's a target to treat, I would also offer them surgery as well. Uh, Then when you talk about uh, patient's lifestyle or their work, um, so those that are in the military, uh, scuba divers who fly or are pilots, uh, or if they're pregnant, uh, any of those patients, if they were to have a recurrent pneumothorax in one of those situations, uh, could be quite dangerous. And then lastly, the patient preference has started to play more of a role in this. Uh, Some patients uh, want to accept an upfront small surgical risk in order to avoid having a recurrence of their pneumothorax. Uh, And I think that's reasonable uh, to offer a patient uh, surgery uh, in that situation as it may avoid a future hospitalization. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. 
product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Let's move on to another case. So this gentleman is a 48-year-old male. History of tobacco use, about a 20-pack year smoking history. He presents with dyspnea on exertion and a cough for four days that worsened the day of his presentation. He was hemodynamically stable. His chest x-ray showed a right pneumothorax with a 7-centimeter apex cupola distance. We placed a 10-French pigtail chest tube. After this, he had an air leak, so we kept the chest tube to suction. But the air leak persisted for a few days, actually. And he had an enlarging pneumothorax despite his chest tube remaining to suction. So... Why does this happen and what are your options? The simple answer is that the rate of the leak is greater than the drainage from the chest tube. The important question is why is this happening? Whenever something unexpected is happening with the tube, you have to go to the patient's bedside and troubleshoot it. The questions I would ask are, is the tube even within the pleural space? Is the suction on? Is the tube kinked? Is there a loose connection somewhere? Is the tube partially pulled out? Once you have addressed each of those areas, then it can, could be interthoracic tube issues. Is it occluded by the re-expanded lung? Is it poorly positioned, limited to drainage? Is it clogged with fibrin? Or is the tube inherently just too small to adequately drain the leak? Depending on the cause, your options are to flush the tube with sterile saline, replace the chest tube with a larger one, add a second chest tube, increase the suction, or if those other measures have failed, operative intervention with VATS, and a blebectomy, belectomy combined with pleurodesis to get a better positioned chest tube. So initially the patient wanted to avoid surgery. He got a second chest tube placed more apically by interventional radiology. The pneumothorax stopped expanding with this, but he continued to have space at the apex. So he was trialed on suction at negative 40 centimeters of water. What is the evidence for the amount of suction we apply to chest tubes? Well, there really isn't uh, great evidence. Uh, there's some small studies that actually don't show an advantage to suction. There is a theoretical concern with suction that as you're applying a negative pressure, you're actually keeping an air leak open. There's some concerns re regarding suction and creating re-expansion pulmonary edema uh, or significant pleural discomfort. Uh, but you would add suction because you really want to create good lung to chest wall apposition. Uh, and expecting that those would scar together and heal over any of the defects. So we routinely use minus 20 centimeters of water suction initially, get a follow-up chest x-ray after several hours. If the lung is re-expanded, we'll often switch to water seal, even if there is an air leak present. If the lung is not expanded, then we'd prefer to continue suction or even increase suction until we can get good opposition of the lung and get good lung expansion uh, with the goal to create that apposition to seal an air leak, uh, and as long as the lung is then expanded, then we'll transition to water seal. Great. So this patient, despite a well-placed, more apical chest tube and some increased suction, he was still not resolving his pneumothorax, and he remained symptomatic from it. So then we started talking about surgical options. In this case, we presume this was a secondary pneumothorax given his smoking history, and it obtained a CT chest after the tube was placed. This showed apical bullae about one centimeter in size bilaterally and then no other pathology underlying that. 
So how do we think about CT findings when it comes to surgical planning? Well, we're looking to see if there's underlying blebsorbili and size of those and where they may be located. So there's actually a classification for that uh, called the van der Schuren classification. So class one is basically a normal appearing lung. Class two is just uh, adhesions. Three has blebsorbili, but they're smaller, less than two centimeters. And four has large blebsorbili, larger than two centimeters. So typically we do a wedge resection or a bolectomy for any of the type three or type fours. Well, Peter, what about the blind apical resection for types one and two? Well, that's a great question. Uh, there may be some evidence against doing this because it demonstrates longer operative times with no difference in recurrence, uh, length of stay or drain time. Uh, but we have to remember, we can't always see them on CT scan. So intraoperatively, I would visually inspect the lungs. If anything's visible, I'd remove those blebs perform an air leak test with saline, and ultimately do everything I can to try and find any abnormalities or the site of the leak. But if I couldn't, well then I would perform an apical and superior segment wedges. There is a low risk of making things worse than they already are. It really doesn't add all that much time uh, to the surgery, though there is some associated cost, and we are likely to remove some lung pathology. Well, what about you, Brian? What would you do? Well, Peter, I agree. I, I plan to do the same and have done the same as, as you described. I'm there because I think there's lung pathology and would wedge off part of the apex and part of the superior segment, just as you've described. All right. I think you know what my next question is going to be. What about for pleurodesis? There are so many options. Megan, of course, you know, pleurodesis must be combined with this, in, in our opinion. And pleurodesis can be divided into two broad categories, mechanical and chemical. Mechanical pleurodesis is most commonly done by using a sponge gauze or a small piece of the cautery scratch pad to roughen up uh, or inflame the parietal pleura. The most aggressive mechanical pleurodesis is actually to remove the pleura by stripping it or performing a form of apical pleurectomy. Some prefer pleural stripping as it's quite effective, but you need to consider whether there may be a need for extra pleural dissection at any time in the future. You want to think about patients who have cystic fibrosis or somebody who might become a lung transplant candidate. Mechanical pleurodesis is also effective with a 2.3% recurrence when used alone and has the benefit of preserving the extra pleural plane. Chemical pleurodesis is achieved with installation of a medication which creates irritation of the pleura, thus inflammation and thus pleurodesis. While many have been described, in my experience, the most commonly used ones are doxycycline, bleomycin, uh, povidone iodine, dextrose 50% or talc. But of all of these, talc is probably the one that's been most well studied and seems to be the most effective. Prior concerns about ARDS were due to large variability in the particle sizes, and in particular, the small sizes being more readily absorbed systemically and causing ARD or causing ARDS. We prefer talc in these situations, and since we have universally switched to the more uniform, larger French talc, our ARDS rates have been exceedingly low. Okay. I remember, uh, I know some of our patients, after using talc, have fevers or have a, have a pretty significant opioid requirement uh, for their pain control. And with the amount of inflammation you cause in the pleural space, it's not surprising. Uh, but I do remember before I before I came to Swedish, getting a bit chewed out once for giving a patient Motrin after a pleurodesis. The idea being that 
I could be decreasing the inflammation we're trying to create. So what kind of, does that hold any water? Well, in my experience, it may. Although it has been studied when using talc for pleural effusions, and there was no difference, when you looked at recurrence rates of the effusion three to six months out for patients receiving NSAIDs, uh, and, it can, and NSAIDs can be a very highly effective part of a multimodal pain management plan, but my personal preference is to only add it when I have issues with pain control. Uh, anecdotally, during my general surgery training, I had a patient who had a spontaneous primary pneumothorax. They had mechanical pleuridesis. They were on scheduled catorolac afterwards. He had a prolonged air leak, so we brought him back to the operating room three days later, and his chest wall was pristine. It looked like no one had ever even been there, that he had never had an operation in the first place. So given that experience, I don't like to schedule NSAIDs, um, but I will use them when pain control warrants it. That's fair. Okay, so on this gentleman's chest CT, we talked about that there were blebs bilaterally, despite his pneumothorax only being on the right. Do you limit surgery to the right side or opt for a bilateral or a staged approach at, for those with bilateral blebs or bullae? Well, that's a really great question because it's relatively common in patients that have lung disease since it's often bilateral. So recovery from a bilateral pleurodesis can be extremely taxing on a patient. And for this, I would just treat the right side with the pneumothorax, with the VATS, lebectomy, and talc pleurodesis. I reserve treatment of the other side for if he ever develops a pneumothorax then. Uh, what about you, Brian? I agree with you, Peter. I would treat the affected side, and I would reserve treatment on the contralateral side for when he has developed a pneumothorax. The likelihood of him developing that contralateral pneumothorax we think is around 20 to 25%. So he has a reasonable chance of not having to have any other problems on that side and avoiding us doing an operation. Okay, next case is an 85-year-old man. He was brought into the emergency department by his wife for two days of shortness of breath and increasing oxygen requirements at home. At baseline, he's on two liters of nasal cannula and he also has some right-sided chest pain. He has a history of COPD and numerous other comorbidities, a 40-pack year smoking history. He has no increased work of breathing and his vital signs are normal. He's on three liters via nasal cannula at the time that you see him. The emergency department gets a chest x-ray and that showed a right-sided pneumothorax with seven centimeters of apical pleural separation. So an eight French chest tube was placed by the emergency department provider. And of note, this provider describes the chest x-ray concerning for tension physiology. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, tension pneumothorax is a clinical diagnosis, not radiographic. Clearly in this case, in a patient who has normal vital signs, no increased work of breathing, and is on a relatively small amount of nasal cannula oxygen, it's not a tension. Uh, so but really, tension physiology uh, would make the decision for you if it's present. You have to get a tube in right away. You have to decompress that pleural space. So it can be whatever type, uh, whether you're an ED physician, uh, resident, surgeon, whichever type you're most comfortable with, as long as you can get it in quick. Uh, in our experience, and what's often described is a simple needle decompression, 14-gauge angiocath, put it in the second intercostal space in the midclavicular line, and that's going to easily get a tube in in a relatively safe spot to decompress the space, and that gives you time uh, in the emergency room to get set up for a chest tube. 
So the small bore chest tube was placed and he was admitted to the hospital for his secondary spontaneous pneumothorax. On follow-up chest x-ray, his lung appeared to be nicely re-expanded. A review of his most recent CT scan of the chest showed that he extent extensive bullet and homogenous type emphysema. The next morning on water seal, the chest, had, chest tube had no air leak and his lung was still expanded after four hours. Do you clamp trial this chest tube and how quickly do you remove it, Peter? Well, the American College of Chest Physicians is split on this 50-50 on clamping chest tubes. Well, the idea is that you could create a tension physiology if there's an ongoing leak, um, but by clamping it, we oftentimes can detect a subclinical leak or an intermittent leak that's difficult to, to detect at the bedside. Uh, and you would be able to put the chest tube back to water seal or suction rather than having to replace it. Uh, so for practical purposes, we consider clamping a chest tube if there is a prolonged air leak and we are unable to identify if the leak is completely sealed, if there is an intermittent leak, or a very slow air leak that we really want to identify prior to completely removing the tube. The need for clamping has overall diminished since uh, at our institution we've started using a digital drainage system rather than a pleurovac or atrium canister and this allows us to see the amount of air leaking over time using a digital readout. Uh, so I would not clamp him and I would not be in a hurry to remove it given his overall age and underlying medical comorbidities. All right. For our patient, his chest x-ray the following morning showed that his pneumothorax had recurred. Uh, so for this gentleman who, given his lung disease and other comorbidities, is not a surgical candidate, what would your next step be? You know, Megan, I would agree he's not a very good surgical candidate with what's been described. And I would first try to determine if we can get his lung re-expanded again. That might require us placing another tube. But probably simply, we would increase suction first and repeat a chest x-ray before trying to place another tube. Once we got the lung inflated, then we would need to have a discussion with him and his wife about the risks of chemical pleurodesis. In my experience, these patients are often frail, and, and even pleurodesis could lead to complications, including death. If we agreed to pleurodesis, then we would instill a 4 or 5 gram talc slurry into his chest tube. And because it's likely he has a small subclinical leak, given the recurrence of the pneumothorax, we would not really want to clamp him after we place the, the talc slurry. We would keep the tube to, to suction, but we would take the chest tube, uh, the chest tubing uh, and hang it over an IV pole to keep the entry site of this chest um, below where the tube would go so that it would keep the slurry from running out. And that's how we sort of keep these guys from running into trouble. And then if, if after much discussion we decided that pleurodesis was too risky for him, he would continue to be observed and likely discharged home when we could get him down to one tube and hopefully let his, his pleural space uh, pleurodes on its own with the tube in alone. Okay, last one. This is an interesting one. A 35-year-old woman, non-smoker, presents to the thoracic surgery office. She has had multiple recurrent pneumothoraces on the left side. While it's still going to be more common for young women to have a primary pneumothorax, what are other things you're thinking about in a non-smoking woman of childbearing age? Well, some of the more rare diagnoses come to mind. One is a catamenial pneumothorax. That can be related to pleural endometriosis, and it typically happens in the first few days of the menstrual cycle, is commonly right-sided, and is commonly cyclical, uh, and can happen kind of at 
each time in the month when they're going through menstruation. Another uncommon thing that I would think about in this woman is LAM, or lymphangioleomyomatosis. LAM is a proliferation of the smooth muscle cells around the lymphatics, the vasculature, and the bronchi to the point where you see invasion into those structures, and it results in pulmonary parenchymal cysts, bulli, and blebs. And then one other common, uncommon pathology that presents in both men and women is Berthold-Dube syndrome. Uh, autosomal dominant mutation in the FLCN gene that leads to emphysema and often presents as pneumothorax in addition to having soft tissue and renal tumors. So the easiest way to differentiate these is probably with a CT scan. This woman had a CT chest and it showed innumerable thin-walled cysts in both lungs distributed throughout from apex to base involving the costophrenic sinuses. There was no associated nodularity, ground glass opacity, nor hemorrhage. And that's pretty much pathonomic for LAM. What other workup would you do for a patient that you're seeing in clinic? So like you said, I'm if I'm evaluating her electively in the office with no current pneumothorax, then I would get pulmonary function tests. These patients have reduced lung function that typically shows an obstructive picture or a mixed obstructive and restrictive pattern. And her pulmonary function test did show that mixed ob obstructive restrictive pattern. If we change the scenario a little bit and she were to show up symptomatic to the emergency department though, what would your approach be for a secondary spontaneous pneumothorax? Well, Megan, there's not a lot of evidence uh, for these uncommon cases of secondary spontaneous pneumothorax patients. However, there are some general principles that we would apply to almost all secondary spontaneous pneumothoraces. You know, after the tube was placed and they were stable, we definitely would repeat a CT scan to understand what the pattern of disease was um, and to get a sense for whether it's uh, LAM or it's COPD or it's something else. And in that CT scan, we would look for targets that we potentially could operate on for COPD patients. Much like the second case we did, there were targets to sort of consider operating on. We would also think about, do we need tissue to make a diagnosis? And so if this patient that we were discussing with LAM, or presumed LAM, had shown up with other tissue diagnosis, then and there were some areas that we could target for tissue diagnosis, then we would certainly consider a thoracoscopy or a VATS to, to go forward with that. And in most of these patients, often we will do a VATS and we'll do a pleuridesis at the same time. Often we would use talc in these situations because that gives us the best chance of pleuridesis because they do have a higher rate of recurrence. And that would be for their first time. Now, because they have a higher rate of recurrence, sometimes you are there for recurrent disease. And then we would consider pleurectomy as an option, or we would consider even an open procedure to give her even a lower likelihood of recurrence, given that these patients do have a lot of uh, a high risk of recurrences. Peter? Uh, so another thing to consider for the secondary pneumothorax patients when you're planning surgery is that this patient may actually be on their way to requiring a lung transplant, especially in a young, otherwise healthy woman with LAM who's now at the point with multiple pneumothoraces who may be on oxygen. Uh, they may end up being evaluated for one in the future. Uh, and so sometimes surgeons can try to preserve the pleura specifically to allow for an extra pleural dissection at the time of transplant. There really isn't a lot of data that shows benefit to this. 
and we don't always know who's actually going to go on to be evaluated or require a transplant. Uh, and in those that do, uh, there are some reports of intraoperative hemorrhage in patients that have had a previous pleurectomy or pleurodesis, but nearly not enough data to show a real significance. So ultimately, I think it, this, it all depends on the surgeon and what they're most comfortable with. If that surgeon routinely does pleurectomy, I would stick with pleurectomy. If they routinely do pleurodesis, I would do pleurodesis. I wouldn't necessarily worry about a future possible transplant and deciding what to do for your patient right now. Great. Gentlemen, thank you for discussing all things pneumothorax. One of my favorite parts of Behind the Knife is always the quick hit section, so I wanted to keep that, that tradition alive. So, Dr. Louie, when would you consider placing a large size chest tube greater than 28 French? Megan, I think that would be exceptionally rare in our circumstance for a, a, a pneumothorax. More importantly, we would almost want to target the location uh, of the tube if we needed, a, especially if we needed a second tube, and that would be apical, second interspace, anteriorly where we put the tube, or if it was predominantly a basal or pneumothorax that we could not drain, we would put an angled tube down there, but rarely would we go larger than 28. 28. All right, Dr. White, if you have a patient with ARDS and prolonged ventilation, do you leave the chest tube in for longer? Well, so for this patient, it's not really a spontaneous pneumothorax. We're presuming that this is a barotrauma iatrogenic pneumothorax, and that's why they got the tube. And then it really just depends. It depends on what their ventilation settings are, and it depends on whether or not they have a prolonged, they have an air leak. If they have a persistent air leak, for sure, you have to keep the tube. Otherwise, they are at real high risk of developing a tension pneumothorax. Otherwise, if there isn't a persistent air leak, I would still leave the tube in as long as they have high vent settings, high PEEP, because they're at high risk of recurrence. All right, Dr. Louie, how do you treat a catamenial pneumothorax? Well, Megan, catamenial pneumothorax is one of the tougher ones to, to treat, and there are some principles you know, at thoracoscopy, we would want to inspect the entire surface, and if there were endometrial implants, we'd want to biopsy them so that we could make the diagnosis. And if there were areas on the lung, we would want to resect all visible disease. The second component of that is the diaphragm often has fenestrations because the endometriosis may have created them, uh, and so you want to close those by either resecting them and repairing it, and often we'll place an absorbable mesh down there just to create increased inflammation, and we'll almost always we'll pleurodese these patients. And once we were done with them, or concomitantly, they need to see gynecology for hormonal therapy, birth control, they may need a laparoscopy to evaluate for endometriosis, and they may need tubal ligation, since one of the rare common occurrences is air coming from the menstrual cycle through the fallopian tubes. All right, Dr. White, your patient asks you, when can I fly? Well, there are some guidelines from the British Thoracic uh, Society um, that say two weeks after a pneumothorax, uh, but it really depends on uh, the patient's overall clinical course. Uh, it depends on whether it was after surgery or whether it was after uh, observation, um, but two weeks is a good number, and that's really uh, because of the rare chance that they could lose cabin pressure. Uh, commercial vehicles, they're pressurized to between six and 8,000 feet. There's only a very small increase in any pneumothorax size under that situation. But if you lost cabin pressure and now you're at 36,000 feet, you can have a significant increase in the size, cause lung collapse, and significant respiratory distress. All right. 
Dr. Louie, what is a talc poudrage? A talc poudrage is when you take dry talc uh, in the operating room uh, while we're doing vets and you have a, a, an air bulb on it and you squeeze the air bulb and blow talc into the chest so that the talc particles get distributed across the pleural surfaces and create that inflammation of the membrane. So that's what a talc poudrage is. All right. It's fun to say. Poudrage. All right. That's all we got. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, dominate the day.